I always make fun and said I'm not yet ready to go in uh, in retirement because there's still a job to do. There's still too many patients who don't do well enough. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am over the moon today to be sitting down with Dr. Roger Stoop with the Department of Neurosurgery at uh, Northwestern University here in Chicago. Many, many, and in fact, most of our listeners should recognize his name from the landmark 2005 paper in the New England Journal with what has come to be known as the Stoop Protocol, the standard of care for glioblastoma. Um, today, Dr. Stoop has been very generous with his time to come on and talk with us in our continuing series about innovation and creativity within medicine, within neurosurgery, to talk about creativity within clinical trials and clinical research. Dr. Stoop, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So with that paltry intro introduction out of the way, why don't you give our listeners a better sense of yourself? Introduce yourself, in particular for the younger listeners, give us some context about that 2005 study. So I'm Roger Stoop. I went to medical school in Zurich, Switzerland, and got uh, my internist in Switzerland before coming to Chicago, to the University of Chicago, where I did my fellowship in hematology oncology. So I'm fully trained as an internist and as an oncologist. Um, then moved back to Switzerland and actually did my career in Lausanne. I'll come back to the career uh, in a moment. You were asking and you were introducing me nicely. So I have many roles here in Chicago. Mm. I'm uh, not only in the Department of Neurosurgery, but also Division Chief in, uh, for Neuro-Oncology in, uh, in the Department of Neurology. I'm Associate Director for the Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. So there is many different roles, okay. but the roles, it just shows you how medicine is performed, executed these days. It's multidisciplinary, it's integrated, it's a matrix organization. It doesn't matter so much uh, where you really sit, but sitting in neurosurgery, like we're sitting here in the office. So my fellow neurosurgeons are next door when we have to discuss cases. Right. There is just no hurdles to be really the most efficient in the interest of the patient. So that's one of the many models of collaboration. So your question was, hmm, how did that 2005 happen? Yeah, and in fact, maybe for the younger listeners and even for myself, um, at the time, maybe as you start to tell us about the trial and how it came to be, paint us a picture of what the care for these patients looked like at the time. I imagine as it is today, but even more so, it was very hard. There was not much for patients with brain tumors. And to be honest, there was hardly any neuro-oncology. There was a mm. few uh, centers with neuro-oncology expertise, uh, integrated and so on. But until the mid and late 1990s, the attitude was, yes, the surgeon would take out what he could, sometimes not even the super expert surgeon. That was something for the beginners. Patients would mm. get some radiation and often then go to palliative care and hospice care. And patients would die within a year or so. Right. Um, what happened in the 1990s 
on top that there have been some visionary oncologists uh, and neurologists like Victor Levin uh, here in the United States who founded the Society of Neuro-Oncology, there was also a new drug on the horizon that has been developed called temozolomide. Mm -hmm. And temozolomide has been actually rationally designed by medicinal chemists in the academic setting uh, in the UK with a drug which was an alkylating agent that would penetrate better through the blood-brain barrier. Right. And the first trial results came out in very advanced disease, kind of very mixed results, and the field was very divided between believers and non-believers. And so there have been some southern parts of the United States who were more in favor of temozolomide, others not, uh, long controversies, but it was far from a home run. But it was no data one way or another. They were just uh, very small, non-randomized studies given in recurrent disease. Uh, here I was faced with patients, young patients, and especially one very young patient, 22 years old, mm. and you needed to treat glioblastoma. And why was it me? Because I was the youngest in the team at the time. So, okay, nobody else wanted to uh, deal with it. Sure. Uh, this was Europe. They don't ask you what you want to do. You're told what you're supposed to do. Um, so I took what I learned during my training, combining modalities, pushing borders, pushing boundaries, going further. And also had learned that there was a trial done in the United Kingdom where temozolomide was given for melanoma patients, mainly in the phase one setting, continuously daily. So what we then did, we did a phase two trial where we combined temozolomide and radiation in the upfront setting, the phase one, two trial. Um, we were lucky enough that we had drug available mm -hmm. for, uh, through the company, drug was not yet approved. We had zero funding, something you could not do these days. Um, and I had a team of people who were very enthusiastic to at least help those patients and take better care. Taking something from phase two, you need a phase three trial. And I was a member of the EORTC and EORTC brain tumor group and presented this concept to them, initially thinking they would just help me to do a large uncontrolled trial. And here comes the quality of having multidisciplinarity and discussions, and also statisticians early on board who pushed back said, what are you gonna learn from an uncontrolled trial? You gotta do a randomized trial. Right. And so we designed a randomized trial that uh, started, was designed in 1999, started recruitment in about uh, year 2000, completed recruitment in 2002 with 573 patients, if I remember my own numbers correct. <laughs> um, and the results were presented at the ASCO meeting and the plenary session in 2004. And that was the first time since 20 years earlier when radiation was shown to be effective in a randomized trial that we had a drug and a treatment that would somewhat prolong the life um, of patients with uh, glioblastoma. 
Now, let me tug on a couple threads that I noticed sticking out there in the story because, you know, the, the story of the development of this protocol and the impact that it's had for the patients and the field since then is one that should be repeated, that should be taught to every medical student, and that we're all still living with the tools that were given to us in that protocol. But what I would like to drill into today is more so the thought process and what was going on internally for you and, and any members of the team that, you, that you're willing to speak about at the time. And so I, some things that stuck out for me when you were talking was the patients. Clearly there are a handful and one in particular patient that really were motivating you at the time that it seems you still think about. And, you know, I often talk to people, particularly on this show, and, and I ask them about achievements or um, successes they've had or large steps they've taken, rearranging a program, starting a business, and they always externalize. And, and you said, oh, you know, at the time I was the young guy on the team. I couldn't choose what I was doing. Um, I just did what I was trained to do and, and did multiple modalities. But clearly there was something that you picked up on some combination of those modalities that laid themselves before you. So wh what do you think was going on in your mind at the time that led you to A, develop the protocol that you did and bring it through to the trial, but B, that gave you the drive and gave you the energy to stick with it and to take the bet on this drug that, as you said, was not popular with everyone? I think there are two things. Um, at that time, all the progress we made in solid tumors was the combination of chemotherapy and radiation hmm. and to treat early on. Whether this was cervix cancer, esophageal cancer, a little bit of data in, in lung cancer, um, head and neck cancer. So that's, that was my background. So taking that concept, taking that concept to the brain tumor people, these weren't neurologists, usually very defensive. You mm. don't want to do any harm. I learned a lot from them because uh, we in oncology have been accepting quite a bit of toxicity to the benefit to right. really uh, counterbalance the disease. They were the opposite, be careful. So that was the rationale behind. There was some preclinical rationale. We had the data that radiation and chemotherapy work well together uh, and it could be a radiation sensitizer, could augment the effect. The other lesson was really, if you want to have an impact, don't try your new innovation when everything else has failed. Mm. That's the most resistant tumors. You know, unless you have something miraculous, which is unlikely, you're never going to show it. So if there is a window of opportunity to do something early on, do it earlier in the care. I think that was a very important part. And temozolomide, indeed, in recurrent disease, in a small randomized trial, did not really produce uh, convincing results. So that's uh, how to do it. Then the last is this equipoise, this ambiguity, the believers and the non-believers. Beliefs are for church, mosque, synagogue. Right. We are scientists. We need facts. It doesn't matter what Dr. Stoop believes. What I did is running the experiment so we have at the end of the day the data. And that has been true on other trials we've done like selenchitide or Avastin, which failed, or tumor-treating fields where the majority are non-believers, but 
we produced a result. Mm. So I think that's what you need. What I would tell younger people like you, if you feel like something is the right thing to do, do it against common opinion. And even if everybody tells you it's not going to work. We need data, even good negative data. What we often produce is no data that is really useful as we go. So when you run an experiment, make sure that you get a readout that will advance your knowledge. Right. That's a very interesting point you raise about trying a new intervention early in the disease process instead of when you've thrown everything in the kitchen sink at it, the patient is at the end of the natural history of disease, and in fact, the unnatural history, because you've done all these interventions, and then you try something new and try to act like that's a fair trial of it. So in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when you were conducting this trial, and as you said, there was really no standard of care for glioblastoma, I imagine it might have been easier to get approval to try your protocol. But now that there is an accepted standard of care, so to speak, has there been greater difficulty in attempting new treatments early in the disease process? Because the equipoise changes now that we have an accepted standard, right? You need to build on the standard, but uh, the standard is not good. You know, we're sitting here. Can I really be proud that uh, we have three-fourths of the patients, 75 of the patients dead after two years with the STOOP protocol? Mm. But of course, it goes way further. Actually, we actually have almost 50% of the patients alive at two years, if you treat the right patients. So in the whole process, I had close links with my colleagues in the lab. And here I really want to highlight Monica Hege, uh, my partner in crime in the lab, (laughs) who we had tissue on all the patients. We had hypotheses we could test. So one hypothesis that we were uh, testing was this MGMT promoter methylation. And it turns out um, that this fairly simple and simplistic marker is an excellent predictor uh, on response and benefit to temozolomide and for outcome. So uh, here we have a marker that would allow us to select patients to get treated with temozolomide. Mm. What we struggle with for the ones who are unmethylated, we still don't have anything better than temozolomide and because no test is 100%, so we still give temozolomide. But in large randomized trials now we're conducting in new things to be tested, we would focus on the unmethylated patients, unmethylated tumors, and withhold temozolomide to the benefit of something new. So you can modify the standard of care. The standard of care is there, you need to know it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to give it to everybody. If tomorrow I have a, a glioblastoma and the MGMT is unmethylated, am I really sure I want to get treated with the STOOP protocol or maybe I go for something innovative that has not yet been disproven to be effective? Or I may even say, you know what, I don't want any treatments, I go to the next beach in Hawaii and just wait what's happening. Right. Um, so, the balance there. Now, it's not as simple. You need to know your MGMT test. You need to have a different safety margin if you want to focus on unmethylated ones and withholding temozolomide. Mm. So there is some intellectual process going in. But there are trials that are run nationwide which would f- 
focus on only unmethylated ones and give them like immunotherapy instead of uh, chemotherapy in the upfront setting. Now, I love what you just said, where you said you would try something innovative that has not yet been disproven. I think it's very difficult to wrap your head around because as you said, we're scientists, or at least we should be at, at heart. We're both scientists and some kind of craftsman, clinician, there's artistry to it, but what we do should be based in evidence. And many people I talk to don't always take that mindset that just because something has not been proven doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right? The absence of evidence is not, the, uh, is not evidence of absence for something's efficacy. And so maybe you could talk about not the creativity in, in these trials and in discovering, developing the protocols, but maybe when you approach patients today with this new evidence that you just cited and your years of experience, how much room is there for creativity in the actual delivery of care to your patients? Because when I was in medical school, I worked with a few oncologists during my medical rotations, and some of them would play with protocols for various chemo regimens, and then others said, nope, this is Betty Crocker. The trial is the data, and the data is the outcome I can promise the patient, so we're doing it by the book. So I, I would guess from what you just said that you take more of a sometimes creative, sometimes intuitive approach, but how much room is there for that in actual practice? Very good question. If we go in this road of everything is codified and cannot you cannot deviate and it's all guidelines, then there is zero creativity. We have to make sure that we don't kill the creativity on that. Um, guidelines are the minimal common denominator. That's not mm. uh, so that, but you need to know what the guideline and the standard is if you want to go beyond. And then you have to need to have a solid rationale. Now, if you do it in a setting of an academic practice with peers, you're not going to do that on your own. You need to have your peers to agree to it. You write a protocol that forces you to systematically put it down so there is some reflection. Are you uh, doing damage to the patient? Right. Like withholding temozolomide, temozolomide from a patient with a methylated gene promoter that probably could damage it. So that may probably not make sense. Um, on the other side, there are situations where the outcome is not good overall that, yes, you may reach out. So there is a difference whether I do that in my private practice just because I feel I know it better than the rest of the world or you do it in a systematic way. Right. I think the, my luck was that in Lausanne I had an environment that was supportive, similar to what we have here at Northwestern, where people interact, discuss, but allow also for thoughts that are outside the box that you could carry ideas forward could write a protocol, could actually write a protocol with a reasonable effort and not uh, too much red tape mm. to really move forward and learn. And you have a team who carries together the responsibility for the right and sometimes the wrong decisions. Now, some wrong decisions in hindsight that were wrong in hindsight, you, we would still make the same decision right. based on what we know. 
Similar to your practice, you know, you do, you do surgery, you don't always know the outcome. And sometimes things go sour despite all best efforts. Right. But it was still based on what the knowledge you had, the right thing to go for it and to go in. So that's the, that's the fine line. Yeah. You know, I, I want to respect your time and I'm, I'm sure we need to be wrapping up soon. Um, and I'm sure that many, many of our listeners right now would love me to ask you, what's the next thing on the horizon? What's around the corner for glioma treatment? Um, and all the, the medical students and junior residents are anxiously holding a pen to paper to take notes and, and for me to pick your brain about what they should all be working on. But I'm the guy in the room and I'm the one talking with you. So I get to ask the questions that I want. And the more I sit and listen to you talk about your practice and these decades of experience taking care of these patients and the strides that you've made, but still the dissatisfaction with the outcomes we can achieve today overall. I, I wonder if you could just talk about what it's like for you caring for this population of patients over so much time. And if I, I know you, you mentioned a 22-year-old girl before, if there's any stories that stand out to you that you'd be comfortable sharing with us. But I'm, I'm just curious for you, Dr. Sue, wh what is it like caring for these people over all these years? Well, I think we could fill two, three, four hours of stories Right. patients and uh, many that I remember and know very well, including patients who are, I treated at the very beginning of my career and I have getting old, are getting older with me and getting gray hair with me and are doing fine. Beautiful. So it gives, you have to be humble so we don't always know and our predictions are not always right. So I have patients who have been doing well and uh, possibly being cured against all odds. Um, I get a lot of energy from my patients. Mm. So even though there are days after clinic completely worn out, yes, uh, when you have a series of patients and you have one MRI after the other and you have to break bad news, mm. that's not the good days. But overall, by the next morning, this is the inspiration to actually continue to fight. Um, I always make fun and said I'm not yet ready to go in, uh, in retirement because there's still a job to do. There's still too many patients who don't do well enough. Mm. But they alluded to before, and I alluded before even saying up to 50%. With the right treatments, we have a good number of patients, even though they're not cured, but they live longer and they live better. Right. Um, we have broad advances, better understanding of the disease, way better pathology, um, expert neuropathology, molecular uh, targeted treatments. We have temozolomide that is there, at least for some population, to stay. Um, Avastin failed to prolong survival, but occasionally in a lower dose than what has been uh, suggested by the drug company is actually there to help on the quality of life instead of giving steroids. We have tumor treating fields, a uh, very controversially discussed uh, topic, but we have phase three trial uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.63, the same hazard ratio than for temozolomide, that seems to work and thus prolong both progression-free and overall survival um, in all subgroups, but in particular for the MGMT methylated ones, uh, surely something to keep in mind and to build on. The immunotherapy, we haven't made thrives yet, but there's a lot of research going into that. Mm. Viral therapy, 
um, and here is Matt Lesniak. We've done a trial at Northwestern where we don't give it for the second recurrence, but actually we use it in the upfront setting and we're designing the next generation of trials to really use it um, even before the primary surgery. So always designing trials so we learn something on the biological side as much as on the clinical outcome side. So there is a lot of energy and I'm privileged. I'm working in an academic setting. I have patient care where I take come the inspiration and also the obligation, the energy to move forward. And there is the days and the colleagues to exchange to really find the best solution and the best next step to do. Beautiful. Well, I, I don't think we can top that, Dr. Stoop. Um, as I was telling you before we started recording here, this episode has been a few years in the making. When I interviewed here, when I was making the rounds for residency interviews, I think you had recently joined the department and I just loved our conversation at the time. We, we actually spontaneously touched on a lot of the ideas we talked about today with looking forward, looking around the corner and exploring creativity in clinical trials. And uh, since that time, almost three years ago now, I've been waiting to have this conversation with you. So I'm just so grateful for your time and for you joining us today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Come back. <laughs> Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.